Okay, now, y'all guys. All right. So, Asia, I don't know if you like me. I'm probably one of maybe some people out there are like me. I don't know. But Asia, do you want kids? Yes. Yes. I don't want kids. (laughs) Kids actually love me. Like, I'm really good with kids. But I don't, I don't really. Somebody told me I probably will be a good father. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm 40 now. I can imagine having a child now. You realize I'll be like 58. If I had them this year, I'd be 58 before they would got my house. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, you know what? I think that when they're yours, I've always heard it's different when it's yours because I have, um, I babysat a lot. I have worked in childcare. I've worked in preschool. Uh, there was one time where I was just like living off of nanny gigs. So um, they are beautiful and fun to be around and energetic. But I love that at the end of the night, I was able to go home to like peace and quiet. Listen. Uh, um, <laughs> but I've heard that once they are your own, it's a completely different feeling. So maybe you'll feel a little different. Like once you have your own, you'll like want to share space. <laughs> I don't know if I want to put any child through that. I'm just, <laughs> I, I I came to realize in my older age, because I didn't really notice it when I was younger, I'm selfish. I really, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm used to being by myself. I'm used to having my own. I'm re- used to being, you know, moving by myself. But it's like, oh, you know, yeah. some days I really, I really want to be married with kids then other days i'm like absolutely not because i didn't feel like cleaning up the house today i didn't feel like you know cooking today so it's like i'd be going through that like i don't they know just have like their own little personalities i think that's the part that i love like i can't wait to see like the type of personality that my my kids are gonna have like are they gonna be fun and like an energetic like leo energy like me or they're gonna be like more quiet and reserved like what are the things they're gonna be interested in like i just love how they have their own little personalities and their own like little lingo and they're just like their own person that you created yeah i'm a great uncle huh (laughs) i'm a great uh, i will i will love you love you love you and then hand you back off to whomever you need to go to i can be your god god parent all of that oh absolutely you want to go stay with me for a week sure and then you go back home Yep. Give me somebody who's, I was like, give me somebody who's fully grown. But then again, those teenagers, whoo, it's something <laughs> about these Gen Zers out here. They just, they, they have a different type of mentality to the point where it's like, they, so when I was a child back in the day, you know, way back in my day, um, um, I thought that I could just kind of deal, deal with anything. And I didn't really, you know, talk about it. I didn't tell nobody or whatever have you. But mom, she was like, do you even have friends? I was like, yeah, I just don't, you don't know anything about them. I didn't have imaginary friends. They were real. Not just real in my head. They were real. They were real. <laughs> but it, it, I, I see the generation now, especially millennials and um, our Gen Zers is like, for when I'm looking at them, I'm like, y'all don't know how to deal with nothing. It's like... Um, every everything is like linked to some form of depression or 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 indecision or whatever have you. And so and for a long time that was my mentality. Mm-hmm. But then I um 
like talking with my brother because he is a millennial talking with him i'm realizing that the stuff that you guys are introduced or that we all are introduced now is just so readily accessible like i didn't have social media back then i had a real bully you know a, a bully that i would see physically every day mm. you know you know or i didn't have many but i did have one to the point where <laughs> quick story <laughs> story time Okay, I had just moved to South Carolina, and for some reason, there was this one dude, he just would not let up. It was like every day, it was like constant. This is like ninth grade, constantly. No, no, it was eighth grade. No, 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 South Carolina. Just moved there. I ain't know nobody. They didn't know me. So I'm still trying to learn. I'm a military brat. Um, we just kind of moved there, and I'm trying to make friends, but just one person, he just did not like me. So he just kind of just went in every single day. So I just had, I just kept dealing with it, dealing with it, dealing with it. Cause I was a quiet kid. You know, I talk a, a lot now, but back then, nah. And so it just got to this head. It was probably maybe the second nine weeks and I was getting ready to go to the cafeteria. This person was behind me and just kept antagonizing me behind me. So he had his friends just laughing and, and joking. Then he pushed me. That's when I saw red. That's the turning point. I turned around and I went to town on Good. that little boy. Good. The next thing I knew, I saw black and I woke up in a hospital. Oh. We evidently we went to tussling. Ooh. And I had a concussion and so did he. Oh, well, at least y'all both was in the hospital. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. From that point on, that little crumb snatcher acted like we were best friends. Ain't it funny how things change? Ain't it? But I will, like I said, I had a physical bully. These kids now, they have digital bullies. Yeah. And sometimes they can't talk about it. Totally. They don't want to talk about it. And it's like, it's really hard because it's like, how do you get away from it? Everybody's on their phones. Everybody's on social media. And it's like, so now I start to internalize. You have people, stuff is going on in the television, movies, yeah. um, the news, whatever, our, our own, you know, peers. And then you also have to deal with physical bullies as well. And having to deal with all of that, I only had to have to deal with just going to school. Yeah. So I can understand where that anxiety comes from. Yeah. And so now it's like giving them the opportunity to actually start to talk about it. So yeah, I think that is key and just like a safest place, like just kind of getting um, that, a place that makes you feel secure uh, where you can talk about these things it's just really important it's crucial and you know I don't remember I re also remember being bullied and don't remember um, anywhere that I felt that I could go I felt like the school counselors didn't have time I felt like I was just nobody really cared you know and it, I was just kind of dealing with it alone and sometimes the way that I coped with it were not healthy ways um, but you know, I just didn't, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't have the words that I have now as an adult that I wish I would have had as a kid, even as a middle schooler, um, just being, um, bullied, antagonized, um, racism, all kinds of things and comments that were said. And I just, I internalized it all. And I remember writing a lot when I was in like fifth grade, we had these little journals and I just felt like my teachers were out to get me and just, and I just would write, I hate teachers. And, and I just did a lot of writing. And then my teacher, you know, she kind of pulled me to the side because 
we had to turn our journals in. So she saw what I was writing and she had to have a conversation with me and my mom and asked me why I felt that way. And she, you know, she said she apologized. She didn't want me to feel singled out and she gave me the support I needed. And we turned that year around. So writing is kind of how I coped with just, you know, um, being, being bullied or, you know, at the time felt like I was kind of being targeted because I was the only black kid in a room full of white kids. And I felt like my teachers were every little thing that I did, you know, um, but we kind of went through that process and writing was how I was able to just kind of let loose and cope. And I felt that was probably the healthiest way. Um, and also sports. I, I loved sports. I was a softball player. So um, I went to the field and that was, that's what helped me kind of just like, okay, this is where I feel like Asia again. This is where I, I feel like I'm good out here. I feel accepted out here. I feel like I'm on top of my game. And so be like, a, like I started to perform and performance mm-hmm. helped me uh, to feel more grounded and not feel like I was a straight up loser or felt like, you know, nobody liked me because I was good out here. And so the softball field kind of became my, like my space. Nice. Um, I am glad that you had that moment of what well, at least the teacher saw, okay, there's an issue here. So we have to figure out what can we do to um, make it better. Yeah. And so you have so many kids now um, and really adults, like if we deal with it now, um, it really sets us up or if we deal with it, then it really sets us up to develop into the adults and better adults. And so I'm kind of glad that we're kind of being able to kind of talk about that today. Uh, We have a wonderful person that's going to be um, kind of just talking about, we have a psychiatrist. We have a psychiatrist, (laughs) not a psychologist. There's a difference. And we're going to be learning what the difference between those two things are. And maybe by the end of it, I might want kids. Yes. And she's a child (laughs) and an adolescent and adult psychologist. So she um, is going to touch it all. And so I'm so excited for you guys to be able to tune in and listen to who we have next. It's really going to be one of those episodes that really touches your life um, and has you changing your perspective on mental health. So thank you all for um, tuning in to RDU Black. Again, my name is Devashi. And my name is Aisha. And we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, what's up? It's Devashi from RDU Black Podcast. Have you checked out our website yet? We want to let you know that we are creating a Black-owned business directory. We would love for you to add your business or your favorite Black-owned business. We want to make sure that all of us are represented. So go over to rdublackpodcast.com. That's rdublkpodcast.com and add your business today. Let's grow together. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another awesome episode of RDU Black. I am, uh, again, excited. And I am not going to say extremely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm excited to get to know um, this powerhouse, another goat in the RDU area. Um, Definitely, I think this is going to be a conversation uh, that many of our our people need to continually to have. I know we, we've kind of started to normalize it. Something that we definitely want to let our listeners um, know more about, and I can't wait to hear from Absolutely. Same here. I'm really excited to hear about um, just ways that she chooses to to cope 
um, and also to kind of just share her story about just overcoming various fears and things in her life and just any advice that she has to give to our community. As you know, last year was just um, a very heavy year for a lot of people. A lot of people experienced loss in various ways and learning how to cope with all of the ups and downs of last year um, really saved people um, looking back at it today. And we're, you know, and we're still in it. So I'm really excited to bring up our next guest feature for this episode. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and hop into this bio because it is a meaty one. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> Dr. Erica Drassa is a double board certified child adolescent and adult psychiatrist who has been committed to serving individuals and families impacted by psychiatric conditions for over 15 years. She is passionate about education, increasing mental health awareness, breaking down barriers of stigma, and addressing and eliminating health disparities that impact individuals from diverse ethnic backgrounds. Dr. Drassa earned her Bachelor of Science at Spelman College, Master of Public Health in Healthcare and Leadership at UNC Chapel Hill, and her Doctor of Medicine at Duke University School of Medicine, where she completed her residency and fellowship. After graduating from Duke, she served as the medical director of an eating disorder hospital, where she helped to develop policies and programming to deliver high quality and evidence-based treatment within multiple levels of care. She also has specialized in the treatment of mood disorders, anxiety disorders, ADHD, aut autism, spectrum disorders, PTSD in children, adolescents, and adults. As a mental health advocate, Dr. Draza currently serves on the Race, Ethnicity, and Equity Committee for the North Carolina Psychiatric Association. She also is a delegate for the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Assembly. She currently serves on the executive board of Project HEAL, a nonprofit organization which helps to eliminate disparities and access to eating disorder treatment. She is the co-founder and partner of Catalyst Therapeutic Services, LLC, based in Durham, North Carolina. She also serves as a consulting associate for Duke University School of Medicine. During her free time, she loves to teach cycling and yoga classes. Please allow us to welcome Dr. Erica Drassa. Yay, yay! yay. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Erica! As I read that bio, I just like am so grateful that you took the time to join us on Are You Black? And I'm like, I don't see how she has time for any of this. We are not worthy. We are not worthy. I'm so, I'm so I'm honored to be here. I'm grateful that you guys have me so we could talk about mental health and, you know, again, normalizing, like you said, normalizing these conversations. So thank you so much for having me tonight. Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I want to just um, say that I went back and probably watched three different interviews that you've done so far. And um, I just I was amazed about how much and how how much, you know, but I was like, she's a doctor. So, of course, <laughs> it's going to come like second nature. You know, I'm over here, bar barely got a B.A. And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> We so all the degrees, the BAs, yes. So um I know you went to Duke University and um uh, that's in Durham. Where are you originally from? Are you from from the area or did you are you a transplant? 
I'm a transplant. I'm a transplant, but I think I can officially say I am now a Durhamite. Like, yes, mm-hmm, nope, nope. We say Durham residents. We say Durham residents. Don't say Durhamite. I'm a Durhamite too. I'm a Durham resident. Okay, my bad. <laughs> I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. Shout out to the Buffalo Bills. We hey. all made it this season. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, my family, they couldn't really tolerate those blizzards anymore. So we moved down south when um when I was in high school. So I actually went to high school in Jacksonville, Florida. And then I moved back up to Atlanta, where I went to Spelman College. And Went straight from Spelman to Duke and started out at my first year in uh, medical school in, in 2001, actually. So it's been 20 years. Wow. Oh, in, yeah. In Durham. Oh, yeah. You're, yeah. you're a Durham resident at this point. Yeah. Uh, the longest, play, longest time I've lived anywhere. So that says a lot about the city. It yeah. Does. Yeah, yeah. So you you said you said Spellman, so HBCUs out there, absolutely. Whoop whoop, Spellman, yes. um, Atlanta, Georgia, stand up, you know. So yeah, I I, I actually hmm, I have a love hate relationship with Atlanta. I do, I really do. I I don't know. It's just I don't know. I, the older I'm getting, the more I'm starting to like the area. Okay. Because Atlanta Atlanta is, in my opinion, it's not Georgia. It's, oh, no. it's, no. it's 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 its own thing. Well, you step outside of Atlanta, though, just like in Durham, like as soon as you step outside of the Triangle, you realize, like, oh, I'm in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> Trees, and, dirt, corn, I, cabbage. I love <laughs> but I forget sometimes. You know, it's like as soon as you leave, you see like the Trump signs and stuff. You're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah. where I'm from. I'm from Eastern North Carolina, so oh, yeah. Yeah, so especially have- especially where uh, A went to college, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure up there in the mountains in, in Boone, North Carolina. Oh, okay, yeah, Boone is gorgeous. So. It is, it is. I saw your pictures and hang your rock. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I kind of mentioned this briefly in the bio, um, but last year, um, you know, we kind of all had some different ways that we really need to cope with the pandemic that was going on. Uh, Lots of people were experienced depression. um, Lots of people experienced job loss and just kind of like that uneasy feeling of not knowing what to do, you know, where to go, where not to go. Should I wear a mask? Should I get vaccinated? Is a vaccination even coming? Um, Not even talk about the political unrest as well. So it was just one of those really wonky years that are going down in history. Um, So we all have things that we go to to cope. And I know that yours is your outlet. outlet, It really is body movement and yoga. And uh, recently on your Instagram, you did a power yoga session and um, you called it, uh, you were wearing a shirt that said silence the shame. And so I did some research and found out that silence the shame is a nonprofit organization. It focuses on education and awareness around mental health. And they aim to normalize the conversation and peel back the layers of shame to eliminate stigma and provide support for mental well-being. So um, you, you mentioned, you know, that yoga was something that you really cared about and you just as kind of a new love and like the oh no she's an instructor yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not a love she's an instructor she teaches oh my yes. God. <laughs> yes we do our homework yeah. um, I was hoping you could just tell the listeners about your love for yoga and how you use yoga to educate others about mental health 
Yes, so absolutely. Well, thank you for that. I am, um, you know, it's funny how I came about liking yoga. I went to a yoga class about years ago when I first moved here. One of my friends, she loves yoga and she has, you know, she's super flexible and, you know, but probably has the body type we would, we all envision when we think of yoga. So I went with her to this class and I was like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I just felt like it was not for me. I didn't see anybody who looked like me. I was like, I didn't see any body types that look like me. I was like, yeah, you're on your own with this one. Girl. That's a no so, for me. <laughs> no, that would be a negative, right? So I didn't go they discovered it in, I guess it was 2017, 2018. Actually, no, 2018. Um, I actually quit my job and <laughs> I didn't have like backup or anything. It was just like not the right environment. It was time for me to go. I, I knew I had to go somewhere. I just didn't know where I was going. So it was a little bit of a break and I thought, okay, well, let me check out this yoga class in Durham, there's this class like yoga on the rooftop and they had a live DJ. And I was like, okay, I might be able to roll with that. You know, okay. were these at the Durham hotel? Yeah. Yes. I remember those. Was it the Durham hotel or was it one of those places in downtown, but it was super dope. And I was just like, okay, I think I might, I might be able to do this. So I started going for a few months and then the yoga instructor was like, Hey, you're picking this up really quick. Quickly, and I know that you're also a psychiatrist. Have you ever thought about being an instructor? And I laughed at her. I was like, absolutely no. And the <laughs> I laughed was because I, I love body movement, but I've always been into like hardcore, heavy lifting, you know, doing the weightlifting and cycling. I actually teach cycling classes. So thought of me being a yoga teacher, I was like, that just seems total opposite. <laughs> but I, I took her up on it and um, did did the certification and really fell in love with power yoga, which, you know, does help to, I think, get out a lot of stress for me. Um, it helps me to be in a zone. It, it has a meditative um, meditation kind of component to it. And it helped me significantly, I think, with the anxiety at that time. And Aisha, you talked a little bit about the not knowing, right? And I think we can all identify and relate to that during this time of the pandemic, right? Because we just don't know what to happen in the future. When is it gonna end? You know, how how long do we have to deal with all of this? And I found myself being in that position, just not knowing where my career would go. So there was some anticipatory anxiety of, you know, just kind of waiting it out and having to trust the process. Mm -hmm. And um helped me to learn how to be present because when you're in some of those poses you're really not thinking about anything <laughs> <laughs> try not to fall or <laughs> try to listen i'm trying to uh, pull a charlie hearse or something you know mm -mm. <laughs> exactly but it really does help you to focus on the here and now it helps you to be present and that was something that i share with my patients a lot but i really had to put that into practice for myself how do i be present in the moment you know not worrying about tomorrow or the next day but really just saying hey i have this moment what can i do today to cultivate joy what what can i do to take care of myself and my in my mind and how can i prepare for whatever is to come i, I could do the preparation today so um so that's what that's what really inspired me to do it i love it and during the pandemic you know um just seeing i'm in this group there's about like 3500 black physicians on facebook um black female physicians so we nice. have 
private group on Facebook and so many people were talking about how stressed they were, you know, trying to take care of their own families, but also being essential workers, having to go in and take care of their patients um, and just how how that was having an impact on them emotionally. So I said, you know what, let me just offer up a free class on Sundays. Power Yoga, just offer it up to folks that way if they want to join. It's on Zoom. I was a new teacher anyway. So <laughs> it's like, nice. I'm learning, they're learning, you know, we're in this together kind of thing. And it's been really nice to um, just be able to offer that to some of the women. And some fellas join too. It's online, virtual class. And like I said, it's just been a nice outlet to have people take time for themselves. Yes. That's yeah. really important. We really, you know, we talk about taking care of so many other people. We always, I mean, y'all know, y'all are busy. Y'all shoot y'all up on IG, <laughs> watching these videos and doing research. while work. <laughs> podcast so you know how it's like to be so busy and to juggle so many things but we have to really take time for ourselves to be present and to just take care of ourselves so you had said that um that 2018 you just quit your job um yeah did you have a plan b um was it just it was like i just i got sick of it and then you know (laughs) Um, a year, a year, a year later, um, you start your practice, yeah. uh, your, your business, and then a year after that, COVID hits. So, yeah. can you talk about that transition of, okay, quit my job, don't know what I'm going to do, start a business, and then COVID hits? Yes, yes. So the end of seventeen, entering eighteen, and again, you know, I knew the timing. It was like, okay, I know that this position. It was a blessing to be in that position. I learned a lot from it. I, I have. Um, gain relationships to this day that are so, you know, meaningful. So, but I just knew it wasn't a long-term fit for me. And there were, you know, sometimes some things happen and you're like, yeah, okay, this ain't going to work anymore. Like this, this might be coming, a, this day might come a little sooner than I thought. Right. Um, so sometimes you're there. Sometimes you're there. Sometimes you're there and you have to make the best decisions. You have to prioritize yourself sometimes. And I, I had a hard time with that because, you know, I'm used to giving so much to other people. So I think it was really hard to say, you know what, what is it that I need to be healthy? And to say, you know, I actually really need to just put the put the brakes on and try something different. So it was funny when I told my boss, <laughs> oh, so what are you going to be doing next? And you must have some amazing opportunity. I was like, I don't know. She's like, wait, so you're, you're <laughs> And you don't have a, another job or nothing. Oh else. God! I was like, <laughs> Lord, please make me make me so successful that I can quit my job and really don't worry about what's next. You know, because I already got the funds <laughs> to be able to do it. Savings, you know, you definitely want to build a savings that you can right. off of because you never know, right? And again, this pandemic, none of us could have been able to predict this would have happened. And right, this has now been a full year. Yes. And I remember when it was going down, it's like, oh, a couple cases in LA and a couple cases in New York. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, we're shutting down. Like, okay, but this will be, this will be just a few months and by summer we're good. Mm-hmm. We'll be here a year later, right? So right. want to build a savings so that you can prepare just because you you never know what's going to happen. Preach. But you was- had to prepare for more than just a rainy day. 
you have to prepare for more than just a rainy day. You're absolutely right. You have to be very diligent and, um, you know, and, and it's a blessing. It really is. I know not everyone has that ability, right? So you want to make sure when you're making those decisions, you are calculating all the risks and things like that too, you know, and, and being a psychiatrist, I knew that if, if it came down to it, I would be able to find something, some kind of gig, but I wanted to, I wanted to be intentional about what my next step would be. So, um, a couple of my colleagues, they actually left the same place at the same time. We had no idea. Oh, wow. (laughs) We're not going to talk about why. (laughs) That's for another conversation (laughs) on on the air, probably <laughs> but um, you know, we we were talking, and you know, they had actually said they were thinking about doing a practice, and I thought, hmm, you know, they invited me to join, and I was like, well, let me think about it. I definitely love the idea of having a private practice, and I also wanted to have flexibility to do other things that I'm interested in, um, because again, I'm really um, passionate about mental health and the community and, you know, educating other people. So, you know, I just wanted to have flexibility to do other things. So I thought, okay, this, this is a good direction because going into private practice can be scary and overwhelming, especially if you're doing it solo. And I didn't want to do it solo because I really love working in teams. I love the collaborative aspect of, healthcare and especially in mental health, I think we have to work together as teams. So I've talked to people in solo private practices and, you know, it could be very isolating or lonely. Um, And I knew I didn't want to do that, but the opportunity to work together with two other individuals, I was like, okay, this might actually be a a good thing. And we talked a little bit about what we envisioned and, you know, just started coming up with ideas for the name of the practice and, you know, we knew that we wanted it to be in Durham because we had a really strong relationship with um, Duke. And, um, you know, one of my partners, she and I both were in the Duke Psychiatry Residency together. And then my other partner, he had a really great relationship with UNC because he was a, um, on, he was working for a while. So, you know, we, we knew we wanted it to be in Durham so we could access, you know, young people from all schools from all the universities and um and it just grew it really grew and yeah here we are a few years later and we have you know i was it was funny because during the pandemic i was just like oh man like you know we just got this new space so we we moved into our new space maybe less than a year um when that pandemic hit and which i heard is a beautiful space from what i'm told from what i I was listening and i was they were like it, it feels like home Yes, that that is absolutely what we wanted. We wanted people to not feel like they were in this like sterile medical environment. You know, when you come to talk to someone about things that, that, you know, that nobody else knows, you know, things that you may hold shame around or, you know, just really afraid to talk about, we don't want you to come and not feel comfortable. So that was something that was really important to all of us. So it was, it was really fun finding a place and mm-hmm. buying it, you know, so we bought our space and we own it. Um, and then to decorate it, that was a process. So then come on, own it. Oh yeah, honey. We own, we, own <laughs> we ain't, we ain't renting around here. No, no, we, we considered it, but you know, we were like, why, why do that? It's, it's better to own. So it was a really great, it took us a while to find the space, but once mm-hmm. we found it, we were like, okay, this is it. I love that. Yeah. So by the time the pandemic hit and we were told, oh, we have to transition to virtual 100%. I mean, I didn't know 
what that would look like. We were scrambling. We had to find the right technology and wow. everything over in a matter of a week. And it was it was kind of crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> and I was thinking, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have left that job after all. <laughs> because I didn't know what to expect. I was just like, you know, are people really going to connect virtually for therapy and for psychiatric treatment? But that's real. It, it it works. And um, I think it's great because there are now people who really don't want to go back from it, you know, and because now we have this pandemic and now we're seeing the mental health um, aftermath, right? Mm -hmm. Like how people are dealing with depression and anxiety and all the things, there's such a need for mental health services. So we've been so busy. We've hired two people during the pandemic, um, a therapist and a psychiatrist, and we will likely be bringing more people on because there's a need. There's a whole need there. Yeah. Before we go into um, actually um, what you specialize in, or actually, this actually goes into that, really. Um, you said that you um, hired on both um, psychologists and other another psychiatrist. Yeah. So in my research, I was trying to figure out the difference between the two. Yes. And the only thing that I could really find, and it's probably the most simplistic version of that, is that a psych psychiatrist can prescribe medicine and a psychologist can't but i know it's a little bit deeper than that but if you can kind of like as we're kind of like moving into that actually um your particular uh specialty uh can you kind of exp explain the difference absolutely i'd love to i think it's so important to know the difference especially because there is such a critical need for people of color especially black people to be in this field um there's such a need so you know black People only make up 2% of psychiatrists, 2% of psychologists, 2%. That's two, 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 a whole two, and 4% uh, of licensed social workers. So there's a need there, right? Yeah. We, we need resources and we need people who look like us to provide those resources because the data shows individuals are much more likely, especially people of color, to um, be in treatment and to stay engaged in treatment when they are seeing someone who looks like them. So it's really important to bring people on. So I love talking about this because I want to help. Uh, I don't know what the audience is for this podcast, but I want to help recruit people to this field. So essentially the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist is that a psychologist after college, they will get a PhD in psychology and they will learn how to do um, testing. They'll learn how to do evaluations. Some will go into research, some do the clinical route, and they can learn how to do different therapeutic techniques. Um, the main difference is that psychiatrists, rather than after college going to get a PhD, they actually go to medical school. So we are physicians. We, you know, I've delivered babies, I've done surgery, you know, so you do the full thing in medical school. After nice. you graduate from medical school, you then go on to what's called a psychiatry residency program. Um, you know, and, and depending on what kind of doctor you want to be after medical school, you can go and be an orthopedic surgeon, you can go and be a cardiologist. So the, that's where we kind of diverge. So then we go on to do, do our residency where we learn also how to do therapy. So that's one thing I think a lot of people assume that psychiatrists are all about shoving a pill down somebody's throat. That is not at all what we are about. We have to learn therapeutic techniques. So we all um, can do therapy, some not to, but we are all, all trained to do therapy and we can um, prescribe medications as well. So we can provide both. 
And it really depends on that psychiatrist and their training in terms of, you know, what their um, background is and how they like to go about treating and if they, they like to do therapy. So I do both. I do have patients that I see and only do therapy. I don't prescribe any medications, but there are times when we, we need both. And I do think, you know, in, in the time of COVID, I love the fact that, I mean, you guys are highlighting mental health and I think you're starting to normalize conversations about therapy. I think we still got a lot of work to do when it comes to medicine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because we, we got people right now, you know, the whole, I the conversation of, am I going to get the vaccine? I'm not going to get the vaccine. Ooh, okay. It's a special vaccine for the Blacks that it oh. is for everybody else, you know? <laughs> I've, so. heard, I've heard it all. I've heard so many conspiracies. I've heard, I mean, even today, one of my best friends, I, I was like, okay, you, you're coming at me with some information. I have no idea where you got this data from, but... I would love to know what the data was. <laughs> it was Hotep data. That's what I yep. I yep. Like, I was like, sir, no. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, okay, so what are you thinking? So are, do you think you might get the vaccine? Oh, I'm getting it. 100% I'm getting it. Okay, mm-hmm. both of you are shaking your heads. Yay, awesome. Yes, I, I yes, of course. I can't wait. Like anybody else, you know, it's, it's, it's scary at first thinking about this and how fast so it came along so um you know typically things go through you would you know i know you would know this but typically things i think go through phases and then they need to get approved it's like a longer process so this is kind of abnormal right like i think that's i'm i'm so glad you brought that up because um the reality is it has been going on in stages and actually it has you know one of the doctors dr kizzy we like kizzy Hey, we're, we're trying to get her on. Oh, we're, we're, oh we're, yes. We've already, um, I, I, I believe it was uh, Tiffany that brought up her name. Was it was Tiffany or if it was, um, uh, I'm not sure, but they were like saying the, the one that was actually been working on it for the past 10 years yes. came from Durham, North Carolina, or came she from North Carolina. Came from North Carolina. She was working at the National Institute of Health. So she had already been doing groundwork. And that's a lot of people, you know, they may not know that, right? Yeah, that's true. It does seem like it was rushed. Like all of a sudden we're hearing about it and then it's like, whoa, and now a vaccine. And then wait a minute, the FDA is approving it. But we have to remember she had been working on it for years. Yeah, okay. And when we think about the population, normally we don't get as many people in studies. It's almost like we have a real life study right now. There are so yeah. many people who have received this vaccine. And again, it's very well tolerated. No significant, serious adverse events, you know, like death or anything like that. Um, people are telling me like, oh, they're trying to, it's trying to mess up your fertility and don't mm. take, no, there's no data to support any of that. Right. But the data we have shows that 100%, 100% of individuals who get the vaccine do not get hospitalized or die due to COVID. Wow. Right. That, that That's is, awesome. I mean, it can't get any better than that. The effect of effectiveness rate these vaccines are amazing and again you know this is not something that's been rushed people have been researching it for years and of course then towards the end it's like okay how how can we get this out you know there's different strains and things like that mm-hmm. but again you know there there's data there and um and I'm so glad that you guys are on board I had mine I had both of my vaccines I went with my mom so it was a special moment nice. so we've she was scared, and I didn't get scared till like, last minute. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm about to get that kizzy. And then I was like, oh, gosh. You know, I think I watched too many TikTok videos of, like, you know, people having twitches and stuff. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. 
no, I, thank you for saying that. Thank you for clarifying that because I think lack of information um, is just the reason it builds fear, right? Lack of information builds fear. And so for you to even say that just gives me also more comfort. And sometimes it's just about taking the time to research and really to look into it because had I had I taken my time to research, I probably would have found that out. It's been in development for a long time. And that gives me like, you know, just like a sense of peace. So thank you for saying that so that others, hopefully that encourages others to go and do their research if they're having any doubts about getting the vaccine. Yes, absolutely. I think because it's been politicized, unfortunately, there's so much information out there. So check your sources too. Yes. And, you know, the thing, like you said, about fear, you know, fear is a feeling that doesn't mean it's a truth. So we always want to check our fear mm. facts. We want to fact check everything when it comes That's to good. Fear so we can prepare ourselves. So absolutely. Can you say that again? <laughs> Wait, right. I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> people in the back. <laughs> you the people in the back. In the cheap seats. Okay, so my next question was um, just kind of talking about disparities in uh, minority care. There's usually these barriers to medical access. Um, so access can be limited by lack of insurance and coverage. Um, and there's more than half of uninsured U.S. residents are people of color. So people with limited resources also experience logistical barriers such as taking time off of work, securing child care, finding transportation to and from appointments. Um, another barrier would be lack of qualified available professionals. Like you said, you know, what, what the small percentages of people who are actually practicing. Um, and so, you know, do you think you, this is true information? And, you know, what other barriers of mental health care do you think we face as a community? Like what, you know, what are our most pressing barriers right now for our community that you've kind of observed through your client base um, and just from being Black in Durham? Like, you you know, you kind of have a sense of uh, when people come in, you know, what are some of the things that are, are pretty common, you know, that you would say is trends um, that our, our community is facing? Well, actually, you you better go, girl. You already, <laughs> already laid out a ton of them. So I absolutely agree. You know, the lack of insurance or under insurance, you know, not having those resources, not having the financial resources, absolutely not having child care, yes. especially now when people, you know, some people are working at home and trying to make sure, you know, they're teachers and at the same yes. time, making sure they're teaching their kids. It's really hard to navigate all of that. Um, so yeah, those are absolute barriers. I think the other thing that I see really is stigma. There is so much stigma and shame when it comes to um, mental health for, for whatever reason. I think oftentimes it's probably because we identify it as being a weakness. Mm. And if we think that it's a weakness or that we are somehow to blame, I can't tell you how many times I hear, but I should, I should know how to do this or I should be able to get out of this. I shouldn't feel depressed because I know I'm I'm blessed, right? Too blessed to be stressed. Come on. Um, we start we, because we start um, telling ourselves all the things that we should be doing. There's this kind of should shame cycle that mm. occurs, and it traps us, right, yeah. from being able to um, have that awareness that okay, I can actually need help. And then what happens is we end up 
suffering and silence. And that's why I love that organization, Silence, um, silence the Shame, because I think we have to start talking about it more and more so that people feel comfortable seeking out resources if they really need them. But we have to let go of the shame and, and the fear. It's okay to be afraid, but we don't want that to get in the way of us pursuing the care that we need. We have to let go of this idea that it's a weakness or that we are to blame um, if we are struggling with a mental illness. What I tell folks is that, you know, psychiatric conditions are brain diseases. Our brain is an organ, just like our heart, just like our kidneys. You know, so if you had a heart condition, you wouldn't just be like, "Woo, let me just pray this away and just hope that these palpitations just get better on their own. No, sometimes you actually really do need a medication. Same thing for, you know, diabetes. Well, yes, your doctor is going to tell you to make some lifestyle um, modifications, but you also may need to be on insulin for a little while. Yeah. You know, if we can have other issues that impact other organs, why wouldn't we have conditions that can impact our brain? So that's yes. the barrier, I think, is shame and stigma um, and that cycle. Definitely think, um, like you said, we, we need more of us in the workforce. We need more yeah. Black doctors. We need more Black therapists. We need more Black psychologists. We need more Black dietitians. I mean, dietitians, I, I can name maybe one I know. <laughs> one wow. We, we really need black dietitians, you know, so we need more representation. But even if we can't find that immediately, right, not all of us are going to be able to see a provider of color, but we need to at least be able to find providers who are culturally sensitive, right, and who are mm -hmm. able to um, shift in such a way and make space, create space for us to bring everything into the room, even if that includes race-based trauma and other sorts of things that we may not necessarily feel comfortable talking about. We need to find those providers who are culturally sensitive and aware. So, um, you know, we may, again, I just want to highlight, we may not be able to find a person of color, especially depending on where you live, um, resources can be very limited. Yeah. So the one thing I love about um, what's happened in terms of creativity with the pandemic is we now have virtual services. Telemedicine, it's been amazing to yes. prove, right, that we can actually provide good quality evidence-based care via telemedicine and reach neighborhoods and areas, rural areas. I know you mentioned mm -hmm. Eastern North Carolina, right? So there is definitely a lack of resources, but I actually see I actually <laughs> have patients in Eastern North Carolina now. Um, lack of resources. My yeah. God. Yeah. So, you know, there aren't that many. I can think of maybe two black child psychiatrists that are in the area, maybe one now. Um, but yeah, I've been getting referrals from that area. So, you know, it's cool to be able to see folks in North Carolina, to see folks out in the mountains. I have people who, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen when the pandemic's over. I don't think they're going to come drive three hours. Maybe they will, but now <laughs> I found a whole cohort of people from all over the state, which is really amazing. That's wonderful. Um, I was I was reading that. Um, so you're a child psychiatrist. Yeah. Uh, we uh, that's adolescent and adult, child, adolescent, adult. So I see the whole child, world. adolescent, everybody. Everybody. You got, yeah, you got everybody. Everybody. <laughs> kind of started off um, uh, as the medical director of, of an eating disorder hospital. Um, what? How did you decide to start there? And then you kind of just, um, I guess, you open up more of of the specialty to incorporate other things yeah no that's a great question i actually started my my very first job was actually staying on at duke 
So um, I, after I finished my fellowship, so I did my residency and then I did additional training to specialize with children and adolescents. So that was another couple of years. And then I stayed on as faculty at Duke and then I worked for the state hospital actually. So um, I worked in a child latency unit with five to 10 year olds and um, or five to 12 year olds. And they had ADHD. Most of them were traumatized. Most of them had PTSD that um, led to them having significant emotional um, dysregulation, behavioral problems. Um, a lot of them were in the foster care system. So I've, I've kind of seen and done it all, but the mm. order piece, how that happened, um, we're not always as physicians all trained to treat individuals with eating disorders, but I figured if I'm going to be a psychiatrist, I probably should know how to do that. So mm -hmm. I did, I requested to do a year of training working with the eating disorder center at Duke. And during that time, it was pretty amazing because I went into it with assumptions and my own bias, right? Thinking that, all right, I'm going to be seeing a ton of probably 16, 18 year old, you know, Caucasian females all with anorexia, because that's what mm -hmm. I thought of when I thought of an eating disorder. And if we Google that, that's probably, those are going to be the images that we see. But I was very surprised to see, oh, wow, eating disorders actually impact all people, yes. all shapes, all sizes. Actually, most of them are not underweight. Most people suffer from binge eating disorder actually than anorexia um, and black people, brown people actually have higher rates of binge eating disorder or bulimia. Um, so it was very amazing to just, uh, for me to check myself in a way <laughs> to mm. see that, oh, wow, okay, this actually impacts everyone. So it was a really cool experience. So when the opportunity came about and they needed to hire someone, um, they were really excited to see that I had this specialized training in the treatment of eating disorders. So it seemed like a good fit. So I was there for quite a few years. And and then, you know, I, let, I still do the work. I just do it more on an outpatient basis than in a higher level of care. That was good. Uh, Erica, I saw, Dr. Erica, excuse me. Oh. I saw <laughs> I saw that um, on your Instagram, you actually posted um, that Black teens are 50% more likely to engage in bulimic, bulimic, am I pronouncing that right? Bulimic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Behaviors than white teens and Blacks are significantly less likely to be diagnosed with an eating disorder, receive treatment for um, eating disorder services, and to be included in research studies. And so yeah. you kind of hit the nail on the head with exactly what you said. Um, so so why, why do you think this is the case? Because I really, I don't know, it's just I think maybe movies and the media kind of portrays it differently. So I just never really thought that it affected us and our, and our people. And, and, and just kind of thinking about growing up as a black teenager, black um, woman teenager, I just never kind of, this was never anything that I experienced myself or any of my friends that were around me and my church members. Um, but that's a very small group of, you know, adolescents. It's not, you know, really broad. So um, why do you think that's the case? And, and, and we kind of have this associated with um, another race. It's not us. <laughs> I think, well, I think you nailed it, right? Look at what we see in the media. Look at the movies we see. Um, and how eating disorders are portrayed, we really don't see folks who look like us. But I can tell you we are out there because I've seen them. And I have to say it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. Most, um, especially Black individuals, are going to be less likely to be diagnosed. And that's because, pro probably because of provider bias, but also because of the bias we hold too. 
if we are struggling with disordered eating or, you know, poor relationships with body image and things like that, that result in disordered eating, we sometimes may want to hide that and not even really be aware that, oh, wow, this is a problem yes. be in denial about it. I will say the majority of Black patients I have who do have eating disorders that I even see current today, I can't think of a single one who came to me because of that primary reason. Of course. Every last one of them, it was either, you know, primary concern was depression or anxiety. But I asked everybody, you know, on my intake, I asked what their relationship is like with their body, what their relationship is like with food. Um, we have a lot of people who um, struggle with body image in our community. Yeah. Um, and that depends on a lot of factors, genetics, their own environment they may find themselves in, um, comparisons, you know, social media contributes to that too. So I think, um, you know, if we are in denial, and I've, I've heard patients say, I, I don't know how I can have an eating disorder like that. Like black people don't even get that, you know, like that's, <laughs> like, I, check this out. I've seen yeah. boys, I've seen black yeah. boys with full blown anorexia with wow. bulimia nervosa. So they exist and they're impacting our people is just the awareness. We have to, you know, check in with ourselves. And as the providers, we have to be um, more intentional about screening for eating disorders yes. in all people. Um, the most recent data I saw was that um, providers will pick up maybe 17% of eating disorders in Black people mm. versus like over 50% or around 50% in other races. So, you know, we definitely get overlooked. And it's not only us. I think it's also true for Latinos or Native Americans. So it's really important for us to just, you know, again, talk about it, right? Normal yeah. conversation um, to help people understand that, yeah, they can impact our community. And because we don't talk about it and don't raise awareness around it, sometimes it can also be hard to figure out how to get the resources. Yeah. So that's yeah. And, you know, when you look at eating disorder research throughout the years, I mean, now we're starting to get a little bit better, but in the past, it really only focused on anorexia um, or they would do research in treatment centers that were all private pay. So individuals who didn't have insurance or who are on Medicaid couldn't afford to be in those treatment centers. So they would get left out of those research studies. So it was a very um, limited um, cross-section in terms of, you know, the population we're even researching. So, yeah. it, you know, we still have a lot of work to do in terms of the research and understand to provide culturally informed care to people of color and also getting, again, getting more providers into this field because there are very few, <laughs> very, yeah, very, very few. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk um, about, um, and we were talking about this earlier. I'm a generation Xer. Um, uh, Asia, I believe is a millennial, mm -hmm. I believe. Right. And so, um, the thought process of the baby boomers and the generation X about how we deal with mental health mm -hmm. is totally skewed from the millennial and the now generation Z. Yeah. They're a little bit more willing to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, mainly because Generation Z is starting to even normalize it even more and, yeah. and bring a little bit more attention to it. But 
how I was raised <laughs> is that um, you just kind of just deal with it and you don't talk about it. You kind of just sweep it under the rug. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that was healthy. Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, we always have that one crazy uncle um, and no <laughs> one really says anything about it, you know? Um, but now you got Generation Z that's going to like, what's wrong with him? You know, yeah, mm -hmm. they're going to be the one. What's wrong with him? He, you know, we, we, right. Right. and I, I'm, I'm kind of glad about that. But can you kind of just talk uh, briefly about just kind of like that's that progression of thought yeah. of kind of getting to where we are now and based off of just the things that we kind of got wrong before? Right, right. Well, I, I think you are absolutely right. When we think about that generation before us and the baby boomers, we have to also, um, you know, think about mental health in the context of what they were experiencing, right? And the racism and, you know, Jim Crow and all the things that they went through and how um, Black people really were, I mean, we still are, unfortunately, we're seeing that even today, but we think about the experiences that they had the maltreatment, the mistrust that they had with um, the medical community, and especially with psychiatrists. You know, and when we think about those days back in the day, so not for our, our Gen Xers, but you know, when we think about the asylums, for instance. You oh know, well, yes. And how people were, um, you know, sent to asylums. They were sent away from their community yeah. when they struggled with mental illness. So think about the messaging of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we've come we've come a long way in terms of understanding the brain, and I think because of the amazing advances in neuroscience and neurobiology, we're able to better um, articulate what happens in the brain when we're struggling with with psychiatric con conditions. It's not just you know again it's a brain illness, and we've come along in terms of how we treat psychiatric conditions and we don't have to send people away and ostracize them in a way because they're suffering. We mm -hmm. can still do it together as a community. But I think it, it like you said, you know, the generations, um, that, that older generation and even our generation, I'm a Gen Xer as well, um, we don't, we weren't trained to talk about those things yeah. because I think, again, of the stigma and the shame associated with it. But I, I think it's important because the reality is Mental illness is brought about by genetic background and our, our biological mm -hmm. makeup and combination of that with environmental stressors. So I'm, I love that the Gen Zers and the millennials are like, hey, what is wrong with uncle back there? We need to start having conversations. We want to understand our family history. That's we right. have a history of bipolar disorder. There, those are things that I need to know because I need to make sure, hey, if I'm at risk for that, um, mm -hmm. Be careful with my sleep schedule and maybe I won't, you know, partake in smoking marijuana if I know that there's a strong family history of schizophrenia and that, you know, I can develop psychosis due to smoking marijuana. You know, maybe I need to be more careful with drinking. So I think, you know, there are a lot of things or maybe I need to be more aware and do like annual mental health checkups, just like we would go to a physician, you know, just yeah. Meet with a therapist. I think everybody needs to be in therapy, to be honest. But absolutely. <laughs> but you know, I think we need to start normalizing those conversations in our family to better understand what um, what our family members struggled with. Um, and then again, that helps to release the shame. If I know that you know my mom or an aunt struggled with something, and I can hear about how they made it through it. I want to hear those stories of resiliency too. Yes, I think yes. We neglect to talk about that too. We as Black people are so resilient. Yes, I mean, are. beyond is our DNA. 
really is when you think about all of the things our people have been through, pre-slavery, back to where in Africa, before we even got brought on these slave ships. I mean, we went through a lot, you know, when you go to the slave castles and Ghana, and I mean, goodness, we have been through so much as a people. So we need to understand how we are so resilient. You want to learn those stories of resiliency, but if we don't talk about our, our struggles, kind of hard to um to get people to understand that narrative and they isolate it they feel like it's all their fault they blame themselves they keep it inside and that doesn't help them right so we need to get it out there talk about how the family has made it through certain psychiatric conditions or not you know yeah maybe there's suicides you know maybe we need to talk about that maybe we need to talk about the substance use issues in the family and how to support each other when a family member suffers from a substance use disorder or bipolar disorder. But we've got to start having those conversations in our families. Such a beautiful way to look at that and start the conversation. And mm-hmm. you just, I mean, the way you just kind of made it seems just very like easy and, you know, kind of yes. I think that we kind of talk ourselves out of it um, mm-hmm. because we're like, well, what would someone think if we bought this up? Or, you know, I, I mean, I've had instances where I've kind of bought some things up and it's kind of met with resilience. I mean, they're trying to like re- resist what I'm saying right. and they're kind of fighting back in a way. And they're like, you know, uh, don't kind of want to proceed with that conversation or why are you asking that? It's none of your business or it was the past. So um, I think that See was the difference in the generations right there. <laughs> no. And I think it brings about pain. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really at the end of the day, right. When we meet that resistance, we have to figure out what's behind the wall, right? And usually we put a barrier there because we want to protect something. What do we want to protect? We want to, maybe it was fearful. Maybe it was traumatic. Yes. Maybe it brings about a lot of painful memories that are hard to relive. Yeah. So I think that's important too. We want to be um, conscious of that, you know, and creating a safe space essentially for people to feel like they can open up um, and if not, then saying, you know, may, one day when you're feeling ready, I would love to hear more about your experience with XYZ, or I'd love to hear yeah. more about how you were able to um, push through postpartum depression, because it sounds yes. like a really dark period of your life. You know, so, mm-hmm. you know, they, they may not want to because it's just painful to relive it. But again, just like, you know, we need to know cancer, we don't need to know all the details either. And that's okay, too, to say, hey, I just want a better understanding of our family history so that I understand what I'm susceptible to and what my children may be susceptible to so we can look for those things. And you would want to know, right, if you had a family history of breast cancer or yes. if you had a family history of colon cancer. Why? Because that means you're going to get screened earlier and that's going to make a difference in terms of treatment if it's found sooner, right? If you, you can intervene earlier. Mm-hmm. The same is true for mental health, right? We want to intervene. We want to prevent things from developing and getting out of control yes. until it's too late you know, so it's good to start those conversations. So just like the conversation that, you know, with the uh, rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, we were talking about having that conversation between, you know, parents to the young Black child. We need to normalize the conversation, not just that one, but other conversations between parent and child. So yeah. everything you just said, absolutely. Let's start normalizing just that open dialogue we need to continue to do that and to create those safe spaces where people feel comfortable to talk about anything that honesty between no parent and child is 
need it because even I've had it as a, like I said, as a generation Xer, there were some times that I just, I was fearful of just having those conversations because I didn't want the replication, the repercussions, because I come from a generation that if you, if you go too far, then you're being disrespectful and you might get slapped. Yeah, huh? Being grown folk business. Huh? Yeah. I'm, I'm 40. So I'm like, <laughs> and I still can't have certain conversations with my mom, you know? Right. So it's like, you just got to. I, I just want our listeners that as you're listening to what she's saying and what we're saying in, um, in this episode, that um, don't be afraid to have those conversations now. Um, right. We're 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 starting to open up a little bit more. You know, these conversations, especially even with COVID, is like we realize we don't have the time we thought we had. That's right. That is so. Cool take cool. full advantage of these moments. Make these moments happen if they've never happened before. If you if if you've gone through your entire life, like for me, me me and both my stepfather and my biological father, we don't have the best relationship. But I was like, what would have happened this past year? One of them would have passed or, or because of COVID or really, really just anything. And we still have these unresolved um, issues or things that I've never dealt with that I still carry around at 40 years old. I'm like, nah. It's time out for that. You know, I'm taking I'm taking a um a chapter out of my, my brother. He's a millennial and he's like the millennial. Whatever you if, if there's like a a picture of this is a millennial, it is him. So he's like, I don't I don't know why he's like, hey, as a why why this, why that, why this, why that? I don't know. I'm depressed. So it's like <laughs> and I and I I I I I, I make joke with it but it's really not a joking matter but yeah. taking a chapter from him yeah. he he wants an answer he wants an answer and so i'm getting to the point where now i want to an answer well and what you're getting to right is we want to create a space for transparency and vulnerability right and that requires trust it does we need to trust that if we're going you know if you're that gen z or and you're going to have a conversation with your parents about something that's serious and maybe thoughts that you may be having, well, you want to trust that they are not, number one, they're going to listen. <laughs> and I think that's key. I, I, I think, you know, we need to really um, encourage our parents, listen, listen, don't be so quick to solve problems. Listen to your children and your teenagers, your emerging adults who, who have now gone back home because of COVID, you know, after graduating college, we have a ton of adults now living at home. We have to create space to listen with no judgment, no criticism. We create that safe space so people can be, so our children and youth can be vulnerable and transparent, right? So, and that that takes time. It, it means holding our tongue. We may want to be quick to, you know, give them solutions and answers, but some not needing that. Sometimes they're really needing an ear and they may not want you to solve them, but maybe you can actually help them connect with a professional to help solve some of those issues they may be dealing with, right? So I think it's okay, too, to understand our limits as parents and caretakers and aunties, even if you're not a parent, you know, I'm a godmom, I'm an auntie, um, to be able to say, you know, I, I don't know how to help you with that, but I can see, you know, I've noticed you've been isolating more. I noticed you you know, don't seem to be as happy and, and joyful anymore. I can tell a difference in even a quality of your work. I may not know how to help you, but let's work together to find someone who can help. You know, let's point you into the direction of getting help because I want you to see that I see that you're struggling right now. And the other thing is to, I think, creating that safe space 
we can share a little bit about what we may be experiencing. And we don't have to go into details. Like you said, I should like, you know, you don't need to be in grown folks business. Mm -hmm. I think there's something to be said about modeling behavior, modeling things for our youth. So if I'm struggling emotionally, I can actually say, hey, I'm having a hard time, but this is how I cope, right? Oh, that's good. We teach our children and our youth how to experience negative emotion because that, that happens. We don't want to say, oh, but don't cry, <laughs> man up. You know, we ain't got time for tears, too blessed to be stressed. No, we want to create space for your emotions. And we want to say, hey, when I'm struggling, this is what I try to do to help myself feel better. We want to model that behavior. And that may even mean saying, you know what? Mommy's been stressed. Mommy is seeing a, a doctor to help her with her feelings. Mm -hmm. That's how I refer to myself. I'm a feelings doctor. So, you know, I think it's important to normalize that conversation, even within the home, to say when people are struggling and create that safe space of communication. I love that. I love that. It's almost like three-year-olds. Um, <laughs> so when I first moved to Durham, I was actually teaching um, three-year-olds in preschool and they were like, the they are so good at telling you, I'm angry. You know, yeah. they're so good. And I love the innocence of it and the truth mm -hmm. and the rawness and how we as adults, we kind of like grow out of that and we're too yeah. cool for that to tell people, but they are like, and we teach, it's, 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 it's funny because we teach kids to do this. And then once we become adults, we kind of like draw back from that but we teach them to say that we want them to say that instead of hitting somebody in the face with a toy we want you to say I'm angry right I'm sure. angry well someone took the truck from me that yeah. makes and then we're supposed to say I understand that that makes you angry I would be angry too what is something that you could say to Johnny so he doesn't take your truck away oh no I got one better for you my niece was like I'm agitated I'm oh. sorry Yes. That's a big word for a five-year-old. You're okay. agitated. I know that's right. That's pretty serious too. I'm like, sis, we gotta help you. We don't want to stay in an agitated state. I was like, spell it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Dr. Draza, we want to be so respectful of your time. Um, so I just had one question that I wanted to end on, and because I just cannot look at your Instagram and not say anything about the cutest little puppy that you have, Theodore. Oh, cute. <laughs> so, um, you mentioned in your uh, post about Theodore that, you know, you had a phobia of dogs before um, and then you actually went to exposure therapy. Um, so I wanted to know if you could talk to us about how did like therapy help you overcome this fear? And then just for the listeners today, you know, any advice that you have about overcoming your fear and kind of like your journey with exposure um, therapy and little sweet Theodore. He's so cute. Oh my gosh. Again, y'all are just amazing. Y'all do your research. <laughs> this is awesome. Okay, so yes, yeah, so I had a huge, huge fear of dogs growing up, and I could I could tell you lots of different stories. The the craziest story was playing with like a neighbor's dog. I was in the sixth grade, and maybe about like three weeks later, I lost a big chunk of my hair. I mean, I was bald, like doo -doo -doo, like. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I went to the dermatologist. I was actually um, staying with my dad and my aunt for the summer. And my aunt took me to the dermatologist. Wow. And she was like, have you been around dogs lately? And I was like, well, I did pet that dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Like, oh, this is a special, like, canine 
condition that you got and yeah that's why you oh. lost your hair so i y'all when i tell you it was like this big it's I, to be in sixth grade i don't blame you people can't hear but y'all was bit like i lost a ton of hair wow. <laughs> traumatizing because you know girls, we are we are all about our hair especially in the- say, especially in sixth grade like that's the that's the year like Is you're it? getting your self-confidence out like oh yeah. man I'm so sorry that happened to you. I mean, from that point on, I was like, mm-mm, I don't <laughs> And there were many more stories after that. Many more. I could talk for days about crazy dog stories. But anyways, so the therapy I had was kind of like in, in vitro um, <laughs> or in vivo, I guess. Like it was a real life therapy. So I didn't go specifically to a therapist for it. But when I worked at the last job, they actually had a therapy dog. Oh, that's awesome. Nobody told me. Nobody told me during the interview. I took a whole tour of the facility. It wasn't until I showed up to work one day. Oh, (laughs) no. Dog just rolled up on me and I was like, like, (laughs) you know, I screamed. I screamed so loud and I I started crying at work. And I was having like a, a true panic attack. And because everybody is new, it's a new job, and everybody was around me, and everybody saw me, it kind of then, I just started laughing at myself. <laughs> so, so that's why you left, because of the dog. That, that's really why, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, because I was exposed to her all the time, you know, and when mm-hmm. we talk about fears and um, phobias, you know, usually what we do with patients, we do what's called exposure and response prevention, where we expose them to that in very small increments, usually not as direct as me having a dog all up on me, you know, so maybe we would start with having pictures of a dog and then being in the same space, but the dog's on a leash. And then, you know, so gradual, um, but this was kind of like, oh, let's just jump in the deep end. But because I had to um, be at work every day and the dog was there, I had to just learn day after day to reduce my anxiety and to the point where there was one day I actually had a patient who I really thought needed the dog and I went to go find the dog. I was like, where's that dog? And they were like, Dr. Drossa, you looking for the dog? What? (laughs) (laughs) So anybody who knows me, they are like in shock right now. They're like, I cannot believe this girl has a puppy, but his name is Theodore. He's who you can follow him on IG. Um, what? Yeah, shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> my name is underscore Theo. Um, oh my goodness! So cute. <laughs> he is. He is the cutest thing. Hey, look at it this way. Therapy works. There'll be works, but here's what I'll tell you about this dog. And it's been so amazing. So I had, unfortunately, I had a big loss this year, lost a really close friend. And he he picked up on that. He picked up on my grief and he picked up on the sadness and he would just kind of curl up and then just start, you know, in his doggy way, trying to show his love. But I was like, ah, oh, I can actually see why people like getting emotional support dogs because yeah. they really, they can sense that energy and they can sense when something's wrong and then they come and they try to help you feel better. And it really did help. I was like, oh my gosh, like he is showing me so much love right now and I'm here for all of this. And oh. it was so therapeutic. So I'm looking into seeing if I can get him to be a therapeutic dog. Um, that way I can bring him to work when when we can all go outside again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bring people to the office. So hopefully, I'm not sure I have to look into it, but that's, that's a 
Yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea. I'm a dog lover through and through. I hope to have my own again one day, but Me too. Um, yeah, dogs. I love dogs. I, <laughs> I am seeing dogs all day. I don't like cats. No, no, no. I'm a dog. Yeah. I'm good. I, I have an allergy, but I still don't like them. <laughs> Me too. I have an allergy, but I'm like, even if I didn't, yeah, no, it's an I'm good. All right. So the last question that we have, um, if you could, um, you're an entrepreneur. Uh, you are a black woman doing her thing, ha- have the respect of both your colleagues and also the people who work under you based off of the other interviews I've watched. <laughs> Can you take a moment and just speak a word of encouragement um, to our you know, current future black RDU entrepreneurs um, that are listening today? Absolutely. So I would encourage you by saying first, take care of yourself, prioritize your health and your mental health. That is so important because as an entrepreneur, you're giving so much of yourself to other people. It's really important to fill your own cup. So, and that's not selfish. It really is important so that you can give more of yourself. Um, But we have to take care of ourselves. We have to we know that we need time off, take time off. I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> um, so self-care is key. The other thing I would say is just check your fears. I think, you know, when I when I think about stepping out with Catalyst, um, I probably would have done it sooner, but I do think fear held me back. And, you know, whether that's a fear of failure, I know so many of us put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect. And because we're Black, we have to like extra, extra, extra perfect. Um, but we really don't. It's okay. It's actually okay to fail. We grow when we fail. Um, we can use it as a learning opportunity. We're not defined by our failures, but we also don't have to allow fear to limit us or prevent us from really um, chasing after our dreams. So number one, take care of yourself. Number two, just be sure step out on your fear. Yes, sir. Everybody clap it up. Clap it up, clap it up with Dr. Erica. Oh that my was goodness. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Grasa. This was amazing. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me.